Mr. Boyd, come on up. Can we give a round of applause for Colin? Are you, are you going to give a bit of a recap? I'll recap. Okay, I'll recap thank you. Us awesome. You go for it. Okay. Uh, before we recap, um, my name's Colin. Um, if I don't know you, that's because I have not been in the Holdcroft this year really at all. And that's because I got married this past summer to my, my wife, Michaela. She's just sitting there in the front row. Um, you probably see us when we're coming up to get mail or you hear our noisy car, Pearl. It's the Ford Taurus as it pulls into the traffic circle to pick up people for youth. Um, if you see either of us, say hi. We want to get to know you, especially if you know, you're in your first year. Love to chat. Um, today, we are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And it's been a while since we've been here. We've had you know exams. We've had a reading break. We've had stuff. Um, but we've been looking at how God brings about the deliverance and the rescue of his people in the book of Exodus and how he shows his character and how really his character revealed to Israel is his character revealed to us and how we're called to respond to that. One second, I need my water bottle. This is going to get bad if I don't have it. All righty. Thanks. It's not mine. It's Michaela's. <laughs> All righty. Um, Anyways, we're starting off right where we ended. Sometimes we've had to jump around in Exodus because it's a big book and there's only so many weeks to preach on. But this week we're taking off literally right where we ended. So last chapel, might not remember it, Christina preached on the nine plagues. And we had to just end awkwardly after plague nine and just, sorry, that's it, see ya. Um, and when I was told that I'm preaching on what I'm preaching on, Exodus chapter 11 and 12. I looked it up and I was like, plague 10? What do you mean? Like, shouldn't that be lumped in with the rest of them? What's going on here? What's happening? Um, and then I kept reading and I looked at the Passover and I was like, okay, these are pretty big chapters. I get what you're doing here. But then I looked up in a bunch of commentaries and every one of them agrees with Gavin and Kim. What a surprise. The way we divided it is the way that literally everyone else divides it because there's something really special going on with the Passover and how it ties into the 10th plague. Um, and so today we're gonna jump right into the word. So I invite you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapters 11 and 12. We will be skipping a bunch. I'm not making you read it all. I like to read from the NIV. That's what's going to be up on the screen. Um, as you turn there, you'll probably have to watch along with the screen because we're jumping around a lot. There's a ton going on here. But first, let's pray. God, as we open up your word today, would you reveal your character to us? Would our imaginations and our hearts be transformed as we read your word and as we actually encounter you? God, would we, we find ourselves called to live differently in light of your word for the rest of our lives, honestly, God? Would we be continually transformed by your spirit through the reading of your word? Amen. All right, let's read. Okay, so here we go. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women are alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. All right, next slide. 
I'm reading off the back slides in case you can't tell. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her hand mill, and all of the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped and the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians." Now, the length of time the Israelites' people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. 
because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, there is a ton going on there. And I think that's because this passage really is the bridge between two halves of Exodus. There's the half that looks back to the time when they were in Egypt, when they were groaning and crying out to God and saying, God, rescue us. But there's also a forward-looking perspective, looking not only towards the time when they will enter the land and they will be free, but looking forward to as they exit and all of the stories that we're going to look at in the rest of this semester. And there's tons of weird, fantastic things about God revealing himself in Exodus. But this moment actually feels a bit weird to me because the big thing that's going on, they are leaving Egypt at last. You know, they put that big number on it, 430 years, wrap it up with a bow, we're done, we're through. And yet it's like two sentences in the passage here that focus on the woohoo, we're through, and everything else is just kind of preoccupied with other stuff. You see, the Passover dominates this passage, even though what's going on is so tremendous and so dramatic, there's something actually even more dramatic that God says, you need to focus on this before you can move on to the next thing. And that's really because I think here we see that God's rescue plan involves both redemption and relationship. It's not just about, hey, we're rescued. It's about what God actually is showing them through that rescue and how he does it. They're what's most focused on clearly in this text. When we look at the death of the firstborn, we actually see that God has a plan for the redemption of Israel. And when we look at the Passover meal and everything that goes on there, we see God's desire for relationship more than anything else. And so we're going to walk through that. We're going to walk through what and how does God reveal both redemption and relationship here. And so the death of the firstborn, the 10th plague, like we said before, it's radically different from all the others. Commentaries discuss it by itself, and that's really because um, the first 10 plagues focus on Pharaoh's interactions with Moses. It's building up to this climactic point. Pharaoh claims that he can stand against God. He claims that he essentially is God, that he can do what God can do or his servants can do it. And so God shows him through the forces of nature that Pharaoh, you are not who you say you are. And so God controls the natural world, which Pharaoh claims he has domain over. And he sends frogs, he sends hail, he sends darkness. He destroys the lifeblood of Egypt with the Nile turning to blood. But there's something different with this 10th plague. It's not a force of nature. It's God himself directly intervening in history here. It's a direct attack by God against Egypt and specifically against Pharaoh in a way that's so much more intense and so much more huge than the previous 10. The rest have proven that Pharaoh is not God, but this one will prove that Pharaoh can't even keep his own family alive. There's something special here. And really, this 10th plague is a fitting end to the sequence of plagues. The plagues start off with Israel saying, hey, we are being killed. And in this wonderful reversal that's actually kind of terrible as we read it, the children of Egypt will die so that the children of Israel can go free. And that's really hard to deal with for me personally. That just sits weird. As I 
do it. The idea that God would just decree the deaths of so many here, I don't like it. Um, but as I read through, I think I really need to read this in light of the previous nine plagues. Because if I pretend that what's going on here is not actually the culmination of God coming and revealing himself, then I think I can take it much differently than if I remember that God has been showing himself to Egypt just as much as he's been showing himself to Israel. God's showing that he's the one in charge. He's the one who's sovereign over all things here. He's the one making the decision here. It's not me, it's not Moses, it's not any of the Israelites who are saying in a vindictive way, let's go get them. This is God saying, this is actually what is most fitting right here. And my feelings towards this are somewhat changed when I remember that what we see here is one of the biggest themes throughout scripture, one of the earliest themes throughout scripture. And that's that sin requires judgment and that judgment is death. We see it as early as Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sin, the first killing is God who kills animals to clothe them. When we see the sacrifice where Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, God doesn't cancel the sacrifice. He provides the alternative. And here, Egypt is provided as the ransom for Israel. Freedom is bought at a price. And as we read through Exodus, we're going to learn that Israel definitely could not pay this price. You know that Israel messes up a lot. And God's initiation of redemption reminds us that we could never pay the price for ourselves. Israel couldn't pay it. We couldn't pay it. But God is the one who provides the path for redemption. He's the one who delivers us from our sin and from our chains. He is the one who is our rescuer, who wants to see us free and actually accomplishes it. But more than just redemption, God shows us his desire for relationship through the Passover meal. Even as he declares the method for Israel's redemption, the death of the firstborn, God tells them that he desires relationship with them personally as a nation. And God shows this, I think, most clearly through partnering with Israel. In all the rest of the nine plagues, Israel was not affected by any of them, no matter how dramatic and huge they were. Israel was in Goshen, off to, I think, the northeast, and Goshen was unaffected by all of the other major plagues. And so God shows, and has shown, that he can make a distinction between Israel and Egypt without anything being done on Israel's part. But here God says, hey, here's something that I want you to do as I rescue you. I want you to be a part of this. And that's what all the commands about putting the blood on the door are all about. It's God saying, your deliverance is actually going to happen as you cooperate with me and as we do this together. Uh, and part of that, and this ties into the previous point about the plague, the firstborn on Egypt, is we skipped over it because there's so much in this passage. But foreigners actually are included in this. There's a whole section on who can eat with Israel, who can be saved. And it's so wonderfully redemptive how um, they call it the mixed multitude who leaves Egypt with Israel. It's all those who say, I want to follow that God. God invites them in and says, 
yeah, come cooperate with me. Come, let's do this together. But more than just the instructions for the blood on the door, more than just, hey, you're going to be saved, let's partner. The text is so much more focused on what happens afterwards. There's all these instructions for, hey, here's what you're going to do on this one night. But Exodus is written looking forward to the future generations. And that's because the whole verse is on the meal. They're long. There's a whole second section just as long instructing future generations how they are to celebrate this. And I think it's super important that we realize that the reason why the Passover is so central is because God is eating with Israel. Commentators think that what the Passover is as a mechanical thing, you know, eating together, how you do it, the sitting down, the eating with God, is actually God taking a previous ritual which Israel and the Egyptians would have recognized. And he's saying, I'm stripping it of all those connotations. And I'm saying, it's about this. It's about me rescuing you and me sitting down and eating with you as you are rescued. And the focus is on the redemption and the remembrance of that. The focus is on, I'm taking you out from here and you are to remember who I am and how I want to know you. And this whole idea of God redefining something and bringing remembrance, um, it makes me think of Christmas dinner. As I sit down for Christmas dinner at my parents' house this past Christmas, um, my mom made a big deal about how there were no Christmas crackers. Does anyone here have those Christmas crackers that, am I just saying that I'm very Anglo-Saxon? Awesome, people know what I'm talking about. Anyways, did any one of your grandparents make you wear the hats that come in? Yes, absolutely. So weird. You have to wear these paper hats. They fall off of your head. Anyways, my mom hates these hats, and she hates that her dad, my grandpa, always, whenever we're at their house, Christmas crackers on the table, and good old Dave Grant makes us break all them open, read the stupid little jokes inside these Christmas crackers to each other, and wear the hats for the rest of the meal. And you're lucky if your hat breaks and falls off. Anyways, This past Christmas, my mother was making such a huge deal of, we didn't buy Christmas crackers, and I'm happy about it. And so she's redefining this, this meal, the Christmas meal. She's saying, it's not actually about the Christmas crackers here. It's about what the heart of it is. And so she's showing that the heart of it has always been the same, even if the mechanics around it, even if we're chucking those Christmas crackers and we're never buying them again, which, fair, the toy, they're overpriced. Anyways, the heart of it is that the meal is the same, and the thing that we're remembering and the thing we're celebrating is the same. And that's what's going on here. God is making it super, super clear that what you are doing might not be mechanically the same thing. You don't need to sit there with your cloak on and your staff in your hand because you're not leaving tomorrow but you're still going to remember that the God who saved Israel is the same God who actually desires relationship with you and who is eating with you now. And so um, Passover is not something Israel can do alone. They're told, hey, this is a community thing. You got a lamb and your family is too small to eat a whole lamb? Too bad. Go and eat it with your neighbors so that you'll actually eat the whole thing. It is a community affair to remember God as a whole. And hundreds of years later, Jesus shows us God's enacted plan for redemption and relationship. 
At a Passover meal, Jesus redefines redemption and relationship around himself. As he takes the bread, he talks about his body and he highlights redemption. Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. And he's talking about Jesus' actual body. And Jesus brings this up at a meal celebrating God's redemption. That's no accident. Jesus is in the business of this redefinition, and he's saying it's about him. And then when Jesus highlights his blood and he takes the cup, he talks about how actually there is a covenant with God that is being remade in him, that we have relationship with God in such a new and such a transformed way. And I think especially as we read Exodus, it can be hard to hear stories of deliverance and God's faithfulness when our own stories don't follow the same script. But as we'll see in the next few weeks, Israel's story of redemption does not end with the Passover. It does not end when we put a tight little bow on the 430 years. God has only started what he's doing here. They've left Egypt, but they're still a long ways from Canaan. And so you might be hoping for a promise that's still unwritten, that still is unachieved. And there aren't easy answers to our longing for the fullness of restoration. But Exodus promises us hope because even though we might not see that redemption fully in our lives, restoration will come from God who knows us and desires true relationship with us. I don't have answers this morning for your specific story but I do know that the God who does have answers invites us to sit with him and eat a meal. And so if the band can come up, we're going to take communion together this morning. We're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. We're celebrating how God's rescue plan finds us in the middle of our brokenness and makes a way past our insecurities and past our sins, making a way for true relationship with God. In communion, just like in the Passover, we look forwards and we look backwards. We look backwards to what Jesus did for us, for the redemption, the rescue that he brought us, and the relationship that we have. But we also look forward to that day when all things are restored, when we see Jesus face to face, and all that we are promised comes true. And so my invitation to you this morning is come to this table you who have much faith and you who would like to have more, you who have been here often and you who have not been here for a while, you who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed, come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Come Holy Spirit, would you come and make Christ present to us through the bread and through the cup? And so as the band plays a song, I invite you Come to the front, grab the emblems, and then return to your seat and sing. And then once everyone's gathered them, we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us together. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all to make a rest.
rescued Israel. We hope in the same God who was faithful and remains faithful. The Gospel of Matthew says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat it. This is my body. Let's take the bread and eat it together and remember what he's done. And Matthew says that next Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let's drink the cup and remember the relationship we can have with God because of Christ's shed blood. And as we leave today, I'd like to leave you with a blessing. It was a tradition in my youth group, and it's become a tradition of mine to end services with a blessing. And so in ancient times, when someone wanted to give a blessing, they would raise their hands like this. And those who wanted to receive a blessing would do the same. So this morning, if you'd like to have a blessing from God, I invite you to respond like this. As you wake and sleep, and drink and eat. May you do so with the knowledge that God is always with you, for he pursues his people, desiring relationship with them and desires their redemption. Amen.